Radio Gag, the Gays Against Guns show. Prepare to gag, yeah! Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Radio Gag, the weekly Gays Against Guns show. Radio Gag is your weekly update on how to end the horror that is the American gun violence epidemic. I'm Ty Kersley. And I'm Sarah Germaine Lilly. On today's show, Terror Practice, we discuss reactions and feelings about being part of Brooklyn's subway shooting on 4-12-22 that was a frightening example of domestic terrorism. A deranged man advertised his insanity and completed a cross-country trip ending in a local subway station and firing into a subway car during rush hour, a nightmare scenario averted only because of the inability and the incompetence of the attacker. Today we'll share our thoughts about the incident and the larger implications of domestic terror, the dangers of living in a country where weapons are widely available, and the dawning of action by our leaders to confront this crisis, and how it feels to be a New Yorker during this crisis and living in this context of violence. But first, the gun violence prevention news. From the trace. U.S. records at least 143 mass shootings this year after another violent weekend. That tally comes from the Gun Violence Archive, which documented nine incidents with four or more people shot on Saturday and Sunday. In Pittsburgh, two minors were killed and at least eight others were injured from gunfire during a late-night party at a rented apartment in which more than 50 rounds were fired, police said. South Carolina's two mass shootings in two days. On Saturday afternoon, 10 people were shot at a mall in Columbia, South Carolina, after an apparent dispute turned violent. And then on Sunday, at least nine people were shot at a nightclub in Hampton. The Trace's data point today, 87%. In one study, the share of 330 young people in New York City from disadvantaged neighborhoods who reported having owned or carried a gun. Most said they were armed due to lack of trust in the police and or concern about personal safety. And that statistic is from the Center for Court Innovation. And from CNN, President Joe Biden on Monday announced he was nominating former federal prosecutor Steve Dittelbach to run the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives, thrusting the former U.S. attorney into what will likely be a tough confirmation fight. Dittelbach was previously unanimously confirmed by the Senate to serve as the U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Ohio under President Barack Obama. He is currently a partner at Baker Hotstetler and helps lead the firm's white-collar investigations and securities enforcement and litigation team. Administration officials acknowledge Dettelbach faces long odds in the Senate, largely because the gun rights groups routinely oppose any nominee for the agency that regulates guns. The ATF has operated under a series of acting directors since its last Senate-confirmed leader stepped down in 2015, and the Senate last confirmed an ATF nominee in 2013. That's almost 10 years, folks, without an, a regular ATF director. Steve's record makes him ready on day one to lead this agency, Biden said at the White House on Monday, describing him as immensely qualified. 
Well, I was curious about what the NRA was thinking and what was the uh, opposition really to Dettelbach's nomination. So I went on to the NRA website and here's what the NRA had to say. They said Dave Chipman, Biden's first nominee to head the ATF, failed to achieve enough support in the Senate to be confirmed. And after a long campaign by the NRA that featured TV and digital ads, millions of text messages and pieces of, of mail, town halls in critical states and an intense lobbying campaign, the Biden administration withdrew Chipman's nomination. Like Chipman, Dettelbach is a dedicated gun controller with a background that proves he would be neither fair nor objective as head of ATF. When running for Ohio Attorney General in 2018, Dettelbach endorsed gun bans, restrictions on lawful firearm transfers, and further expansions of prohibitions on who can lawfully possess a firearm. In short, it's unclear what gun control measures Dettelbach doesn't support. This led NRA PVF to award Dettelbach an F for his positions on the right to keep and bear arms. Notably, Michael Bloomberg's AstroTurf Gun Control Group, Every Town for Gun Safety, Dave Chipman's former employer, endorsed Dettelbach to, in his bid to become Ohio's Attorney General. So, Ty, the uh michael bloomberg's astroturf gun control group right. every town for gun safety <laughs> you know they're out here promoting this guy for attorney general and now he's going <laughs> for the atf position i'm sorry i i i it's it's hard not to laugh but it's so very serious that we don't have effective enforcement at a federal level because we have the NRA opposing every nominee. Right. And it, it's sort of it's just, it weakens our ability in general, which I think is sort of what the opposition to gun control does is just try to belittle us, um, you know, demean us, tell everyone we're their enemy. Uh, when, even when they, they use the word control, you know, we're not using, uh, we're talking about gun safety, but they have to say he's a gun controller, you know, to, to kind of trigger, for using that term, people who don't want to be controlled and want their guns to be theirs. But regardless, it's a product that has been sold to you that kills people and it needs to be regulated. And having nobody in charge of how this country handles it clearly hasn't worked. Um, I don't, I just don't see any redeeming qualities. Exactly. What about public safety? And let's gun control. Let's talk about gun regulation, because that is the language that is used in the Constitution. And as a matter of fact, the Constitution, the Second Amendment says, well regulated, which seems to me to put us in a context where the need to regulate firearms thoroughly has has already been recognized more than 200 years ago uh, uh, without even the kind of proliferation that we see today. So it, it I, I don't know. It's hard that we've spiraled this far out of control and trying to get anyone on your side with it now, it's just such a divisive issue that when you do have a conversation, you kind of have to say, look, this is going to take me a long time to explain to you how invested and how 
um, much control and money is put towards us not being able to lock up guns. The fact that we've spiraled out of control this far and we can't call BS. I mean, you're officially out of BS. Guns do not make you safer because we're the country with the most guns. So, Ty, let's talk about the uh, subway shooting that uh, uh, that took place last Tuesday. Uh, schools were locked down in the area. The shooter was at large for about 48 hours before they finally turned themselves in. Uh, do you want to s- describe the subway shooter incident as it played out in the news and in our own lives? Well, we knew there was a shooting and, and the first thing we heard about was a shooting on the subway. Um, the details of who was shot and if anyone was killed, I think is what we're generally waiting for at first. But then when you find out it's a planned attack, um, I think that resonates with New York in a different way than shootings do. So the fact that no one was actually killed kind of gives us an opportunity to talk about the survivors that have to live with this for the rest of their lives and what they're going to go through. Even though you have mass shootings around the country where we have fatalities, even then we've seen you know how quickly people forget about those those lost lives, but they never seem to remember the people who you know, were shot. I think it made me think of Sandy and Lonnie Phillips. They said there were 70 injured in Aurora, but then they were all traumatized. So that aspect of us trying to help people with trauma, we can revisit this and revisit the, um, the survivors nation episode from earlier in the year where they discussed their toolkit to help survivors of gun violence, um, with survivors empowered their organization. I'll play part of that interview later on in the show, but what I really think captures everything that we're dealing with in New York right now is Gag's statement on the subway attack. This was written by fellow gagger J.W. Walker. Tuesday, April 12th. This morning's subway mass shooting and the wave of gun violence in our city in recent months reflect just how vulnerable New Yorkers and all Americans are to the over-proliferation of guns throughout our society. New York has long had very strict laws limiting the ability of the vast majority of New Yorkers to legally purchase, own, and carry guns. But due to the absence of effective and comprehensive federal gun violence prevention laws, countless weapons are trafficked into New York City on the Iron Pipeline from southern states with weak to non-existent GBP laws. The result is the kind of carnage we saw in Brooklyn today. At Gaze Against Guns, we recognize that after two years of the societal stress born of the pandemic, that some of the most marginalized, fragile, economically at risk, and under-resourced among us are acting out in violence. The presence of such a thriving black market in firearms makes that sad reality all the more deadly. And now, the U.S. Supreme Court is due to rule on New York SRPA versus Bruin this spring. In that case, brought by an NRA crony organization, is decided by the conservative majority on behalf of the plaintiffs, then New York's existing century-old gun laws, and those in other major cities across the country, including Washington, D.C., could be found unconstitutional and be invalidated in one fell swoop. 
So rather than just deal with all of the illegally trafficked guns, we will then also have to deal with a proliferation of legally purchased guns, which can only make matters even more dangerous for every New Yorker, especially since so little has been done to face and fully address the severe pandemic-related damage to our society's collective mental health struggles or the harsher economic effects and devastation that COVID has had on our poor and working class communities. Sadly, as our political leaders seek to focus solely on law enforcement solutions, like hiring more police, arming them with more and more military grade weaponry, and getting them trained by foreign apartheid state governments known for brutal violence against their most marginalized citizens. If our gun laws are eviscerated by the current SCOTUS, our worst fear is that we will see an escalating arms race between law enforcement and organized criminals in cities across the country, making all of our communities, but particularly poor and working class communities of color, far, far less safe than they already are during this current wave of gun violence. You're listening to Radio Gag, the Gaze Against Gun Show, here on listener-sponsored, commercial-free radio, WBAI. We are here every Tuesday at 2.30, bringing you the latest in gun violence prevention movement news. Next up, we revisit our conversation with Sandy and Lonnie Phillips about their organization, Survivors Empowered, and their toolkit for survivors of gun violence. We have uh, Sandy and Lonnie Phillips from Survivors Empowered. Uh, We'd love for our listeners to know more about your organization. Well, our organization started several years ago. Um, We had been affected by Jesse's death, of course, um, back in 2012. And she was killed at the Aurora Theater Massacre at the Batman movie uh, premiere. And along with 11 others and 70 wounded, uh, it was big news at the time. Um, and five months later, Sandy Hook happened, and we responded to Sandy Hook uh, as uh, you know, just wanting to help them in any way we could. And seeing the the shock and the devastation on the parents' faces, um, I knew immediately that this is what we needed to be doing for the rest of our lives. Um, we we know what that felt like we remembered and seeing them reminded us of we looked just like that five months ago so what can we do to help these people and the organization just kind of grew from that desire to help others um, navigate through those first shocking waves of grief and uh, devastation and then on into finding a way for these people to find hope and uh, deal with their grief and find solutions to the PTSD that most survivors suffer from and depression and anxiety. So our organization has continued to morph from uh, not only responding, but now providing resources to survivors and making sure that uh, they have the ability to tap into mindfulness classes uh, to tap into a, a new, in fact, it's going live next week. We partnered with Giffords uh, and developed a uh, toolkit for survivors who want to know what, what do I do next? What happens now? Where do I go? 
what what services are there? Uh, how do I find a trauma therapist uh, versus a grief therapist? Um, what what actually in, inspired you to actually travel then? Well, um, <laughs> it's backstory here. Uh, after Jesse's death, there we knew that there was going to be a trial, um, and we started asking questions, you know, how long is this going to take, da, 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 da. And everyone was telling us it would be about three years before we had a trial. So for me, it was incredibly important that I was in that courtroom every day, representing not only our daughter, Jessie, but for those who couldn't be in attendance every day of the trial, we were going to represent the survivors and the survivor families of those who were killed. So um, we rented out our house and we bought a camper and we took off for Denver and we were lucky enough to find a driveway we could park on. And it was literally five minutes from the courthouse. And um, after the trial was over, which took almost four months. Yeah, four and a half months. Four and a half months. Um, when the trial was over, we just kind of looked at each other and said, I kind of like this style of living, small living. Um, and this gives us the ability to work with the survivors and the wounded in America and meet them face to face. Uh, one of the things that we, we realized when we were going through the trial, um, when the wounded were there to speak, and to tell their stories and to um, get to know them on a very personal level, one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, our hearts just really went out to the wounded in America. And for every one that is killed in America, there are two that are wounded and survive, but nobody thinks about them ever again. It's like, well, you know, in our case, 70 were wounded. Oh, well, whatever happened to them? You know, well, we know what happens to them and we know their struggles. And sometimes it's not just physical struggles, it's emotional struggle and it's financial struggle. So um, they're being ignored in America. So our fight is not just because we had a daughter taken by gun violence, our fight is because there are so many people living in our country who have been affected by this that nobody sees. They've become invisible. So part of this, um, after living on the road for seven years now, part of this tour being that it's 2022, we're going to 20 states and 22 cities. It'll be more than that by the time we finish, but that's what's on the books. And our job is to connect with the grassroots organizations in those cities and states and work with them to find out exactly what it is they're doing, what their struggles are, who they work with as far as survivors and the wounded, and then help them to connect with other states through organizations and to start forming a very loose knit, but to start forming a coalition. So if I'm working on something in California and so-and-so might be working on something uh, in let's say uh, uh, Wisconsin, um, we've put them together, we've networked for them and they now know each other and they can have those calls 
personally and say, hey, we just did this. Would you be interested in developing that same kind of program in Wisconsin or Louisiana or Maine? And so we're growing our voices by doing that. Um, and we, we, we got very tired of speaking to the choir, as they say. You know, people in the gun violence prevention movement, we all know each other in some way or another, and we are all willing to work with each other. But getting lawyers, um, DAs, um, doctors, nurses, teachers, getting them involved in the conversation and having them listen to what the reality in their state is, and then the reality on a national level, what that reality is like. Um, I think can get more people involved in the movement and get more people um, caring about this issue because it seems like this is the one strange issue in America that you just don't care about until it happens to you. It didn't start out that way. When your question was what got us on this trail, this track, this particular thing that we're doing now with this tour. We started out by <clears throat> after... Um, Columbine, it was like, it was a very long time before Aurora happened. Five months after Aurora happened, Sandy Hook happened. A few months after that, other shoot, mass shootings started to happen, and we started traveling then. So we would go to these sites personally, sometimes days after, depending on where we were and how long it took us to get there and whether we had to fly in or we drove. We have been to 18 public mass shootings. To find out more, go to survivorsempowered.org and click on Survivors Toolkit, created in collaboration with Giffords. Also, be sure to check out our Facebook event page to learn more about our upcoming action, Enough Place to End Gun Violence. The event is tomorrow night, April 20th, the anniversary of the Columbine High School shootings at 6.30 p.m live at Dr. Susan S. McKinney High School at 101 Park Avenue in Fort Greene, Brooklyn, and streaming on Facebook and Instagram. Student actors and Gays Against Guns join schools, community, and professional theaters from across the nation to read short plays written by students about the impact of gun violence on their lives. For a free ticket, visit Gays Against Guns on Facebook or Instagram or go to gagsignup at gmail.com. That's G-A-G-S-I-G-N-U-P at gmail.com. Check enoughplays.net to find a listing of readings across the nation. To find out more about working with us, please go to gazeagainstguns.net or follow us at gazeagainstgunsny on Facebook and Instagram or gag no guns on Twitter. Come to a meeting. Here in New York, we meet every other Thursday at 7 p.m. in Manhattan at the LGBT Center on 13th Street. Our next meeting is Thursday, April 28th, where we will be planning all kinds of great actions and protests, so please join us. Everybody is welcome at any and all gag events. And another great way to get involved is by becoming a WBAI buddy. A WBAI buddy is someone who keeps our unique volunteer-run radio show going by giving a small donation every month. And just a modest monthly contribution can really help keep us on air here at WBAI 
and bring you this show every week. Just go to WBAI.org or call 212-209-2950 and become a BAI buddy in the name of Radio Gag. Thank you. Well, it's time to finish our show. Thanks for listening, and we are back next Tuesday and every Tuesday at 2.30 p.m. And don't forget, you can listen to our previous shows anytime on the WBAI website or on any major podcast platform. Everybody have a great and safe day, and we leave you with our fabulous political singing quartet, Sing Out Louise. While we bleed, America, America, one hundred die each day in suicide and homicide, and all we do is pray. So pitiful, the KKK still marching in their sheets while Michael Brown and Freddie Gray get murdered in the streets. America, America,